Welcome to the Heavy Duty Parts Report. This podcast is presented by the Heavy Duty Consulting Corporation and hosted by our CEO, Jamie Irvin. At the Heavy Duty Consulting Corporation, we work with manufacturers, distributors, and repair shops who want to grow their business. Do you have a problem that you would like some help with? We have developed fault codes for heavy duty parts businesses, just like they have for commercial trucks. Find out how many fault codes your business has and how you stack up against dozens of other heavy-duty parts businesses. Head to heavydutyconsulting.com and schedule a meeting with us today. All right, let's start this episode. You're listening to the Heavy Duty Parts Report. I'm your host, Jamie Irvin, and this is the place where we have conversations that empower heavy-duty people. For any of you who have listened to the show any length of time, you know that uh, I started my career in a remanufacturing facility, and I really got my first taste of commercial truck parts that for class eight, relining brake shoes and, and learning about friction material and bringing friction material to the market that we were working in. So I was really excited to have the opportunity to talk to somebody who is doing what they can to innovate in this space of, of friction and brakes in class eight heavy duty. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to get into a conversation about some of the trends in braking material. And also we're going to talk about ways to lower total cost of operation for fleets and, and owner operators. So I'm really excited about today's conversation. My guest today is Don Orrell. He's the CEO of OPC Parts. Don is a heavy duty aftermarket veteran with over 40 years of experience. He's worked for companies such as Bendix, Centric Parts, and Performance Friction. And now he leads a startup focused on providing premium, medium, and heavy-duty brake products to the heavy-duty independent and OES sales channels. Don, welcome to the Heavy-Duty Parts Report. So glad to have you here. Thanks. Very glad to be here. So Don, I've been looking forward to today's conversation. We are here to talk about brakes and friction material. You've been in the business a long time, 40 years of experience. You've seen a lot of things. I've been in this business at 25 plus years. And as I said in my intro, I started off relining brake shoes and being involved on the, on the brake side of things. So a lot has changed uh, in, in the commercial trucking industry in that time. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what are the trends going on right now that if you're a fleet or an owner operator that you really need to be thinking about, especially in the context of how we want to help people to make the right kinds of decisions with brakes and friction material and keep their total cost of operation down. So what, do you, what are you seeing going on in, in trucking right now? Sure. Um, well, first, you said I've been in the company, in the, uh, in the industry for 40 years. That, that's frightening to hear it coming from somebody else. So back when I started, it wasn't quite horse and buggy, but uh, it was almost all drum brakes back then, you know, so, and even on passenger cars. So it has come a long way. But but more in context of our conversation today, the three things that immediately come to mind to me are we've seen exponential growth in the air disc versus the old traditional SCAM brake. The, the difference in those two platforms brings a lot of implications, not just so much from the friction material itself, but just the service intervals and everything else. So that's one definite thing we want to talk about. Another one is the actual friction material itself. Recent uh, legislation that has brought on the 2025 or the copper-free requirements uh, has dramatically changed you know, how we um, look at friction material. And then the third one, I guess, is which is closest to, to, to our company is the trend line of moving away from remanufactured parts and more to all new parts. 
and and with that brings a lot of economic uh, advantages of new versus remand. And we'll definitely want to drill down a little bit more into that throughout our discussion today. All right. Well, that that's a great place to start. So let's talk about this move towards air disc brake. If you're in the position where you're specking equipment, what are the considerations that you should take when you are thinking, okay, I have to spec this vehicle. Should I go air disc brake? Should I stay with the you know, traditional S-cam? Like walk me through the way you help customers make decisions. With respect to my position today, it's pretty much what's already there since I'm an aftermarket guy. So I want to be able to service both sides of the market. So I, I provide S-cam brake shoes. I provide air disc brake pads. But from the specking side, so if I go back to my life when I was at uh, Tier 1 OEM, which was Bendix, you know, I was there when they were just introducing air brake to the North American aftermarket. And that was, you know, circa 2005-ish. And uh, Bendix had just m- merged with Knorr Bremsen. And the North American truck uh, VIO was virtually 100% drum brake, with a few exceptions in transit, because many of those were European platform. Conversely, Europe was virtually 100% air disc already. So it was a matter of migrating that technology from Europe to the US. And I was, you know, I was there for that. Not, you know, all credit in the world goes to my, my former colleagues and still longtime friends at Bendix. They did a phenomenal job at really bringing the whole market to accept uh, air disc brakes. The advantages are, are plenty from everything from shorter stopping distances to uh, much easier uh, servicing and longer service intervals, lighter weight. It's just like when you think about passenger car in the 60s and 70s, when it went from from drum brake to disc brake, all those same advantages that were prevalent then apply now to the, the class eight market. It just just took a lot longer. You know, when you look at the crystal ball of, you know, what's coming next in the heavy duty market, you only need to go and look at the passenger car market because they're always 20 years ahead of us. You know, so it's actually very easy. Go back, see, see what passenger car is doing. And that's where eventually we're going to be in heavy duty. And so it's a little easier for us because we kind of, we already have a roadmap. You know, air disc has, you know, so many advantages in the decision-making process on how a fleet would spec air disc versus SCAM. Mostly it's just a matter of, you know, force of habit. You know, if, if you've got a kind of an older school uh, director maintenance who just has had a you know, has a, had a good track record with a certain platform of drum brakes. You know, there's a good chance he just might say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But more and more folks are, are recognizing the fact that AirDisc really is from a technology and from a performance standpoint, is just vastly superior. Right, right. You, you mentioned the changes in friction material because of regulations. And, you know, when I was selling parts, one of the things that always was a challenge was to remind people not just to look at the purchase price, right? To look at the quality of the friction material that they're purchasing, to look at the performance characteristics, and to make good decisions about matching the right friction material to the right application based on the vocation that they're in. As the game changes and friction material, the the composition of it is forced to change. Like, What are the considerations that people need to think about now now that we see this mandate with the copper free and and the obvious implications that has on the formulas that are used to make this friction material. Yeah, so copper free created a couple of challenges. You know, the the main reason for copper and, and friction was not so much for conductivity, but actually was lubrication and noise suppression. So uh, when you don't think typically, you don't think lubrication and friction materials, but but that really is one of the primary purposes of having copper in, in a pad. And again, to make it quiet. So one of the biggest challenges when you remove copper, and it's really, 
was a bigger challenge, I would say, for the passenger car market than the commercial vehicle because passenger car used a lot of ceramic. And believe it or not, ceramic had far more copper in it than traditional semi-metallic friction materials. In fact, your traditional semi-met doesn't even have very much much uh, copper in it at all. So it didn't necessitate significant changes. And many were already, you know, end leaf, you know, or, or, or 2025 compliant without, you know, having to, to manipulate the friction formulation at all. But then other NAO type materials, which is not asbestos organic, other materials that did use uh, more copper in it, those were the ones that were impacted. So, you know, at the end of the day, we had to find different materials that would um, substitute and, 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 and displace that copper element. I think by and large, most of the friction manufacturers have, have figured it out. But when we were doing some testing on our pads versus some competitors, I was surprised that one of those competitors, um, who, who I will not name and who I also have a lot of respect for, performed very poorly. When I spoke to a, a, an industry colleague who works for that company, they were like, yeah, I think we, we pulled the trigger because we so badly wanted to be able to say we were copper free. And they kind of jumped the gun before they were really ready. And whereas um, when we tested these these materials, in some areas they were the best, in other areas they were the worst. But one important thing is that they weren't even 121 compliant on one criteria. So I was like, "Whoa!" You see him kicking his feet a little bit. He's like, "Yeah, we're working on that." So, uh, and, I, and I'm sure knowing that company that they have addressed it and fixed it. But it's just a good example of how companies are still trying to figure out how to manage meeting all these new regulations, i.e., the, the copper compliance. And, and that's where the uh, added complexity comes in for the buyer because I, w- I was going to say most companies meet the 121 standard, uh, they have to, but then really at the end of the day, it comes to how fast that friction material is going to wear out. And that's where they, you know, the cost either goes up or, or goes down based on the, the wear characteristics of this, the particular formula. So Don, for some of those that maybe aren't as familiar with the um, copper-free requirements, especially as it relates just to heavy duty, can you give us a little bit of a of a description as to like where did this mandate come from? Why are they putting it in place and what are they hoping to accomplish? Great question. Essentially this started with the state of Washington and the state of California in the mid 2000s. The state of Washington determined that copper in brake dust was entering the aquifers and causing environmental harm particularly as it applies to the salmon fishery and that it was creating issues with the reproductive efficiency of salmon. With that, the state of Washington adopted a set of criteria to and a schedule to reduce the content of copper within brake pads over a period of time. So they actually developed a logo that has three leaves on it. And depending upon which, how many leaves are colored in, one leaf, two leaf, or three leaves would give you a quick visual indicator of what the copper content is of a given brake pad. So with one leaf colored and it has the letter A, that is uh, basically, it could be anything. It could have more than 5% copper. And there are other heavy metals that are included in that, but copper is the main one. So you can have north of 5% copper when it has one leaf colored with the letter A. That was good all the way through 2021. At the end of 21, it had to, it could no longer have be an A pad. It had to be under 5%. And then you could have a B. So once it was two leaves colored with the letter B, it had to, it had to be below 5% copper, but it was allowed to have more than one half of percent copper. So it was in that range, sub five, but more than 0.5. 
And that went on and or is currently in effect now. And it, not until 2025 does it require it to be sub 0.5% copper. And then you have the N, which is all three leaves colored in less than one half of 1% copper. It's technically only been adopted by the state of Washington and California, but as many of these legislations go, it really applies nationally, um, actually U.S., Canada, Mexico. So it's recognized across you know, all 50 states. And so from your perspective, now that we are moving towards the standard, you, you've kind of mentioned that things have started to level out, but specifically for our listeners, when they're trying to make decisions on friction material, how do you walk them through a decision on, on what friction material to use? So I'll start with SCAM because that, for me, it's actually the easier. Back in the day, boy, there were, and there probably still are, dozens, if not hundreds of different brake blocks out there. There's those that are loyal to an ABEX or to a Carlisle or to uh, you know any, any number of Meritor. A lot of really good companies with really great formulations, but it still falls into the, one of those product categories where there's still a lot of loyalty and stickiness, if you will, to the brand, which has largely gone away in the aftermarket, which I, you know, I, I kind of lament that fact. You know, it used to be a brand meant a lot more than it does now. But certain categories like friction material and probably filters, and there's a few others out there where there is still, I think, a little more brand loyalty in the marketplace. So to answer your question on friction, years ago, even not, not that long ago, five or even 10 years ago, you would have a fleet and it's like, I'm only going to use Meritor MA, MA312, or I'm only going to use Carlisle, you know, EC23 or whatever it may be. Nowadays, there just seems to be a little bit broader acceptance. I'll just take your your standard 23K lining and I'm good to go. You know, whether that's an aftermarket brand or whether it be, in, you know, a, a tier one OE brand, there seems to be a little bit less requirement for to, to adhere to one very specific friction as long as it kind of fits in that general broad ranging category. Therein lies the the issue though, isn't it? It's like, okay, I'll take a 23,000 pound lining. One of them wears out in six months. One of them needs to be changed in 18 months. All of a sudden that has a massive implication on your total cost of operation and your cost per mile. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, it's the easiest way to tell either it's through your experience or, you know, price still is a good barometer, you know, because typically the ingredients or the compounds that need to go into a formulation that would improve wear are going to cost a little bit more. So it's relatively easy to tell what you've got. But most of, the, most of the guys out there that are servicing these vehicles are savvy. They understand what friction materials they need, and they're going to stick with it. One of my challenges is to say, okay, I'm the new guy on the block. And one of the things that very harsh but real uh, realization that I had to accept going into this is that, A, the market is already being served. I'm bringing a portfolio of products that if I was to walk into a distributor, they've already got all those categories satisfied. So I have to bring some compelling reasons as to why I'm going to earn their business either as to displace a competitor or to be an addition to their current portfolio that would be economically advantageous to them. What am I going to bring to the party? So there's a lot of different ways that we can approach that or we do approach that. And I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. But to answer your question on, you know, specifically on how to select the right friction material, you know, with SCAM, you know, there used to be dozens, if not hundreds of different materials out there, a lot of them based on price, you know, whether it's a high, you know, a 20K, a 23K, severe duty, on highway, whatever. There seems to be a lot of specific requirements that each fleet has. Nowadays, it seems to be more homogenized to 
23K standard, 23K premium, so the severe duty and so forth. So it's it's kind of been consolidated down to to groups, if you will. Good, better, best, right? Yeah, good, better, best, per- precisely. And then from there, you know, I think one of the things that that we're trying to get folks to understand is that even a moderate quality brake block, uh, let's just say your 23K standard, is going to outlast and outperform a premium block if you mount it on a new shoe. So you've got a you know a mid grade twenty three k lining on on brand new steel, and you know the, all the tolerances are correct. And then you put that premium block on a reline shoe that might might have been relined more than once, but even so, they've been stressed. They're you know even if they were recoined, that steel has memory. So after the first heat cycle, it's going to kind of spring back to whatever shape it was in prior to being coined. And you know some of the holes are elongated. You know, maybe the journals where the, the cam rides are not quite true. So there's a, a lot of different small variables that could come into play that will all contribute to uh, increased wear, even if it's a premium friction. Whereas you take, you know, a good solid mid-grade friction, you put it on a brand new steel, especially heavy duty steel, where you've got a nice, good, square, rigid shoe, you're actually, it's actually going to last you a lot longer. So when you're looking for that cost per mile, you know, one of the things I deal with every single day is, well, news more expensive than Reman. And, you know, it's all about price. And particularly with the trailer guys, they want a cheap shoe. Well, yeah, I understand that. But then, A, you're talking service intervals. And then, B, you know, on those cores that you send back, you know, you're going you're gonna to take at least a 10% ding on that core uh, because you're never going to get 100% core credit. A lot of those things are not ever taken into consideration when, when you're evaluating your, your cost per mile on a ship. With regards to um, air disc friction, you know, so the core is not an issue. New versus reman isn't an issue, at least not on the friction. And then, you know, that's been kind of divvied up into whether it be two or three different weight classes. So some some companies will have three, like a 23K, a 25 or 6K, and then a 28 or 29K. Our approach is to, is to go, you know, your standard 23 and then your severe 29. Three different increments just starts to get really confusing. Most, I'd say 80 plus percent on highway, light vocational, do very well with a 23K friction material. And then, you know, your refuse, your concrete haulers, your transit, those that have, you know, a lot of start-stop, high-duty cycle, a lot of weight, those do much better with the with the higher weight-rated pads. But that seems to be a little bit easier to figure out. It's not quite as complex nowadays. You don't see um, all these different friction codes out there from all these different companies is like like you mentioned earlier, a good, better, best, or just the, a better and a best type approach to it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This episode of the Heavy Duty Parts Report is brought to you by Find It Parts, your ultimate destination for heavy duty truck and trailer parts. Discover a vast range of parts at finditparts.com. Don't spend hours a day looking for parts. Instead, visit finditparts.com and get them right away. Parts availability and quality have a big influence on fleets and owner-operators' total cost of operation. If they can't find a part, it means more downtime. If they install a low-quality part and it fails, it means even more costs like tow bills, hotels, meals for the driver, and lost revenue. That's why we recommend Sampa. They manufacture a wide range of advanced parts for commercial vehicles. Their website has an intelligent product search engine and broad coverage of suspension, steering, and fifth wheel components. Expect more. Expect Sampa. 
Visit Sampa.com today. We're back from our break. Before the break, uh, Don, you did a good job of explaining to us that, you know, in many ways, not much has changed in the whole friction break world. Uh, yes, we, there's there's different platforms, but there's still the constant challenge to help end user customers, fleets and owner operators make good quality decisions and and match, you know, the right friction material to the right application, not just look at purchase price of the friction material and the brakes, but also look at the total cost of operation. That's an ongoing challenge and cost per mile is what it's all about. So we've got to continue to help our customers to make those good quality decisions. So let's talk a little bit about your company. So where does OPC really focus its attention? Where are you guys really, really doing a good job for your customers? So we basically divide our portfolio into two pieces. We've got our heavy duty air brake program, which is air disc, the entire wheel end package, which is your pads, rotors, calipers, and chambers. And then the S camp, which are stop boxes, which, you know, two shoes and a hardware kit and individual hardware kits um, for those that buy shoes in bulk. And then also the chambers that go along with it, the you know, service and, and spring brakes. You know, we're, we're not focusing on a huge broad offering. We want to focus on what we know, what we're good at, and bring, you know, maximum value to, you know, a relatively narrow portfolio to what we know what we're doing. On the medium duty side, it's a little bit broader because it's it's the entire brake system offering. So that would also, you know, include your 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 pads or shoes, drums or rotors, all your ancillary hydraulics, whether it be master cylinders or wheel cylinders or calipers, also brake hoses, sensors. Now that, you know, Years ago, there was no such thing as sensors and sensor wires and all that stuff, but that's an important component on a lot of the newer applications. So we have to make sure that we can provide that so that you do the brake job properly. So we have a, a complete portfolio of those products on medium duty. The other quandary in medium duty is where does the line get drawn? What's late duty? What's medium duty? What's commercial vehicle? What's not? You know, I took the, I, the dumbed down approach it is from F-150 on up. Never fails. You walk into a fleet. I have a medium duty program. It starts at F450 and the guy points at a bunch of, you know, 250 and 350 super duties. And you're like, oh boy. So, you know, we, we just decided let's cover the whole thing, makes it easy. And that way, particularly for a heavy duty distributor who, you know, may not have access to a passenger car brake program, it enables them to go into some of those lighter platforms that they otherwise might not have access to from what some of the other heavy duty guys uh, who dabble in medium duty do. So, I think we have a much more comprehensive offering there, particularly as it as it comes to last mile delivery. You know, that's a huge and growing market. You know, your ProMasters, your Sprinters, your Transits. We do an excellent job of covering that all the way through the most current uh, applications. So let's talk a little bit about uh, at the outset of the interview, we we mentioned that you sell through distribution. So when you're working with your distributors or the dealers that that are buying your product and you're out in the field. What's kind of like a, an ideal customer profile that you're looking to work with? Like, who can you help the best? Well, we really focus on the independent aftermarket and the OES channel. Because we're a relatively small new company, you know, dealing with or, or providing programs to the big PDC programs uh, through the OEs is really not a practical approach. But we do a very good job with the independent aftermarket and help them go out there and meet the fleet where they live and provide cost-effective solutions to what they're they're doing today. So when you sit down with a with one of your distributors customers and you're trying to work with that distributor and help them 
establish a value proposition and say, look, like if you if you switch to this brand of of brakes, we're going to improve the situation for you. I always like to talk about things in in terms of economic impact. So how are you able to position yourself to actually help that fleet improve their economic situation, lower their total cost of operation? What's your approach and 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 kind of walk us through how you do that? Sure. So first off is you know, there's price. And so I don't like to lead with price, but at the end of the day, people say, I don't buy on price, I buy on quality. And then the first thing they ask you is how much does it cost? So when I use the term value, value is essentially a, you know, a ratio, a ratio of quality versus price. So the more quality and the less price you have, the higher your value coefficient is, if you will. So, you know, actually I have a, a graph which shows, you know, where we stand on the scale of price versus quality. And I rate OPC or torch stop products on a scale of one to 10. I rate them at a nine. Now that seems pretty lofty, but I would challenge anybody to put our parts both from a aesthetic and from a performance standpoint up against even the OEMs. And I challenge them to, to match uh, the quality that we can provide. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here talking to you today, because the quality is just so good. And then the other part is price. So we understand that as a new entrant to the market, we need to be aggressive with our pricing. But we're also able to do that because our company is very vertically integrated. My business partners both own factories where we produce friction and then have close relationships with the other uh, owners of the other components, i.e. rotors, calipers, and so forth, such that we have uh, advantageous purchasing power. So even as a new little company, we actually have supply chain positions that would be the envy of much larger companies. So that affords us the opportunity to provide a very aggressively priced product along with the quality that could also challenge that of the of, of the big guys. So Don, I really appreciate the way that you have uh, confidently said how you would rate your your product line up against competitors. I think that's important, right? You got to believe in what you sell. But there's nothing like a real story uh, of how you've helped a real customer to kind of back up the assertion that you have high quality products at competitive prices. So Don, first of all, tell me a story of how you specifically helped a distributor to improve their economic situation selling your products. I'd love to hear that first. And then we'll talk about uh, how you're helping fleets. A great example would be Actually, I have multiple distributors with regards to our caliper program. So a reman caliper, you know, as you know, air disc calipers are not inexpensive by any stretch. You know, I'm just going to throw some general numbers out there to illustrate this, you know, this example. But in, in general marketplace, price on a reman caliper is ballpark $400 net. That can go, that can be higher or lower, but in, in general, that's about where they're at these days. However, along with that comes the proverbial core charge. And that can range anywhere from $250 to $500, depending upon the company. And so one of the things that we feel strongly about is that not only do we not want to handle cores, but we're never going to charge for a core. So even though it's all, you know, all of our products are already 100% new. However, there are companies out there that still want to charge a core for their new part. So there's a reason for that, but we just don't do that. So this distributor who they had a full line of remanufactured calipers. And I explained how, okay, for just 10% more, you're going to be able to put a brand new caliper on your shelf. And then, but you don't have all that, that cash tied up in that core. So, because that core, you really never get it back. 
In the example of a $400 caliper with a $300 core, you're putting $700 on the shelf. When you sell that and you recover the core, okay, so then now you're down to $400 net. That's all great. But then when you have to replenish your inventory, you got to put that $700 back out again. So you never get that $300 back. It's always sitting on your shelf, which is a huge ding to your cash flow. Well, in our example, you don't have that. You just put the part on the shelf. When you sell it, you don't owe anybody a core. But wait a minute, you're going to generate a core as a result of that sale. More often than not, there's going to be no obligation. It's just a force of habit. The guy's going to give you the core back. So now you've acquired a core with no obligation, no strings attached. Now you have an opportunity to sell that on the open market, whether it be to satisfy another core obligation you have elsewhere or just sell it to a broker or wherever else. And then that has significant cash value that only further reduces your acquisition cost or improves your margin, however you want to account for it. But it really makes the overall economic feasibility or the economic advantage of going new versus remand very, very significant. Don, I'm starting to get the feeling that you've got some pretty strong feelings about cores and core charges. Tell me a little bit more about why, as a company, you've made this such a focus. Great question, and thank you for asking. I can go back to my experience working for my former employers where we had um, a lot of remanufactured product, and along that Along with that came with these uh, core aging reports. And I, I still think I have PTSD from looking at some of these long printed green printouts of, of, of core aging reports that I would have to sit down in front of a distributor and explain to him why he owed how many thousands of dollars because his, cores, uh, his core eligibility expired. And I, and I really felt genuinely bad for this distributor who is like screaming and pounding his fist on the desk that, you know, he now has to literally stroke a check for tens of thousands of dollars because some artificial timeline expired. And I just never wanted to put my customer in that position ever again, nor did I want to make him have to pay for those cores up front. So one of the founding principles of OPC parts and Torstop is to never have to deal with the core. Plus from a core management standpoint and logistics you know, they're, they're just an enormous pain. So um, I have yet to find anybody uh, who says they like cores. I talk about it on every call I make, and, and it's unanimous that um, everybody thinks that uh, core is a four-letter word. And so with that, uh, we recently applied for a trademark for that slogan, core is a four-letter word. And you'll see that on a lot of our forthcoming marketing materials, t-shirts, coffee mugs. And, and it truly is how we, you know, what we believe in and and it just makes it makes it a lot easier to do business and it again it 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 saves money it saves handling it saves labor and it just makes overall doing business with these types of products that traditionally involve stacks of dirty cores you know i'm i'm sure anybody who sells a lot of brake shoes would love to not have to sort cores or stack them in, on pallets a certain way and all that other stuff just Go in the dumpster, get scrap, you're off to the races. And so we're just helping distributors and fleets simplify their businesses and uh, and improve their margins without having to deal with force. I hear what you're saying uh, and I understand it intellectually, but it still hurts my heart a little bit because I started off in remanufacturing and I'm envisioning, Don, having you and another guest uh, who does remanufacturing on to kind of duke it out and, and, and weigh the pros and cons. So maybe that's something that we could do in the future. Tell you what, we'll set up a program. Any of my customers with excess cores that come from buying my new parts, we can send them to him. <laughs> there you go. So then you guys can fight it out and be friends at the end. <laughs> it's a win-win. You know, we call them frenemies, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Or 
co-competitors. So yeah, there's always a way. In fact, we actually have some of those arrangements with rebuilders where we facilitate liquidating that core for our customer. So there's there's things we can do to make um, make that a win-win situation. Because we don't want those cores in the landfill. So that sounds good to me. That is true. And certainly cash flow is an important part of managing any business at all, right? If you can do something to, to manage your cash flow better, it makes you more competitive in the marketplace. And you don't just have to go and be in that race to the bottom on price to try to be competitive. So that's a fantastic story. So now when you're working with your distributors and you're helping fleets, tell us a story about how you then um, actually help one of your distributors to improve the situation for the fleet that they're serving. Just to carry the caliper example all the way through. So a month later, after you've sent your caliper back and then the manufacturer says, oh, this is a one part damage. So instead of giving you $250 credit, we're only going to give you $100 credit. If you have to go back and chase that back from your customer, that's not going to go over very well. So either you create an issue with your customer or you end up eating it. So either way, it's a lose-lose situation for the distributor. Often he's the guy, he's the guy who gets stuck in the middle. So we really don't want to put distributors in that, in that position in the first place. But then as far as the advantage to the fleet, I'll, I'll shift over to an example with regards to our air disc pads. You know, again, I, I, I mentioned, you know, our, our quality ratio versus OEM. I always reserve that 10 for the OEM just out of respect because they're the OEM. I will qualify that in, in many cases, I would, I would argue that our pad is even superior to the OE pad. With all that being said, our, our price point is so much significantly better and our formulation is a long wear pad. So you could, there are multiple cases. In fact, I just completed a test with a large dump truck fleet who is using our 29K pad and they observed somewhere between 25 and 33% improved wear on this test for our pad that is 40%, that's 40% less in cost to them. Without having my calculator out and how you extrapolate that in, in, in cost savings, it's, it is very significant and they're very happy with us. And um, they've now exclusively moved over to our pad because it's, it, you know, it, it, it checks off all the boxes. You've got improved performance at a lower price. You know, who can argue with that? Everybody wants that. And we're getting more and more of that. Yeah. And I mean, 40% on the purchase price, that that right off the bat is very easy to calculate how much it's saving. But then you start to add up that 25 to 33% wear characteristic. And where that really starts to stack is on the outside end of the service interval. And after two or three service intervals, you now are are basically eliminating an entire brake job, right? Every three or four service intervals that you just don't have to do because it's lasting so much longer. So when you start to add up your labor, your shop time, your downtime, the revenue when your vehicle truck is down or trailer is down, like all of a sudden this becomes, usually that's an exponentially larger number than what you even saved on the purchase price. Indeed. And, and, and I'll stack on a little bit more our friction formulation. It's an NAO slash low met. So I wouldn't call it as aggressive as a, as a semi met, but it's not a pure organic either. It's extremely rotor friendly. So, you know, a lot of the other half of the equation, you, when you're looking at pad wear, you've also got to consider rotor wear. Because a lot of times you have a very robust pad. It's very hard, for lack of a more complex term, and it will, it will, it'll wear forever, but at what? At the cost of your rotor. So you've got to strike that balance to make sure that, um, cause I quite, quite frankly, I'd rather change pads more frequently than rotors because those are, you know, inboard matter rotors, you got to pull the hub off. It's a huge pain in the, you know what? So. That's something that has to be measured along when you're when you're analyzing the overall cost per mile and the performance and the efficiency. 
rotorware is definitely something that needs to be taken under consideration. You've been listening to the Heavy Duty Parts Report. I'm your host, Jamie Irvin, and we've been speaking with Don Orrell, the CEO of OPC Parts. If you want to learn more about OPC Parts, visit opcparts.com. Don, thank you so much for being on the Heavy Duty Parts Report. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Great. Thank you for having me. HCA Truck Pride is the heart of the independent parts and service channel. They have 750 parts stores and 450 service centers conveniently located across the U.S. and Canada. Visit heavydutypartsreport.com slash HDA Truck Pride today to find a location near you. Again, that's heavydutypartsreport.com slash HDA Truck Pride and let the heart of the independent service channel take care of your commercial equipment.